Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, rugby fans, and welcome to episode 68 of the DNVR Rugby Podcast. My name is Colton Strickler. I'm your host, as always. Uh, today's show is going to be a little bit different. I know if you've been listening to the show the last couple weeks, I said I wasn't really going to take any breaks for the holidays. And while that's still true, I am going to take a break, uh, kind of a, how we do the show a little bit this week. I'm going to put out a little bit of a different show. Still going to try to, to give everybody an episode that they can enjoy. So uh, that means no breakdown, no required reading, no loop, no, none of that stuff. Um, instead, I'll go through the rugby that you'll be able to watch this weekend, and then I will play the hits per se. So uh, we're going to jump into the rugby you can watch this weekend. So Guinness Pro 14 and Premiership Rugby is back. Uh, so we'll start with the Guinness Pro 14. On Saturday, December 26th, we have Zebra versus Benetton um, at 6 a.m. Then we have Dragons versus Cardiff Blues at 8 a.m. Got Ospreys versus Scarlets at 10.15 a.m. And then Munster versus Leinster at 12.35 p.m. on Saturday. Uh, and then on Sunday, December 27th, we have Canock versus Ulster uh, to kind of round out the, the Guinness Pro 14 fixtures for the weekend. You can watch all of those matches on ESPN+. Plus. And then for the Premiership Rugby, we're in round four. We've got Bath versus London Irish on Saturday at 7 a.m. Uh, Harlequins versus Bristol Bears at 7 a.m. Newcastle Falcons versus Leicester Tigers. Uh, and we got Exeter Chiefs versus Gloucester Rugby at 8 a.m. Got Northampton Saints versus Worcester Warriors at 9.30 a.m. And then on Sunday, we've got Sale Shark versus Wasps. Uh, you can watch all those matches on Peacock. So uh, Christmas weekend is always a great sporting weekend. Uh, this this year is no different. Plenty of NFL, a lot of NBA starting back up. So, of course, Christmas Day NBA, it, it's kind of the, the tradition. Um, and now you can mix in some rugby to just, you know, sit on the couch, um, open your presents, watch some rugby. Should be should be a good weekend. Uh, so with that, we'll go ahead and jump into the next part of the show. Like I said, it's going to be a little different. Um, I picked out a few of my favorite interviews that I've done this year, stitch them all together for a best of episode. Um, I'm, I'm proud of every interview that I've done this year, and I'm super thankful for every guest that has come through for me, taking the time out of their day to come chat with me for a few minutes. Uh, it's been a crazy year, and, and it, I have no exception. It's been weird for me. There's been a lot of changes, obviously. MLR getting canceled, Raptors withdrawing, all that stuff. So I uh, had to pivot. A lot and uh, a lot of the times the guests bailed me out there's a lot of weeks I had my stuff together um, I had three or four different interviews banked up at a time but there were way more weeks when I wasn't prepared um, and I had guests come through for me at the last moment bailed me out uh, helped me put out a show for everybody so thank you to every guest that's joined me in person jumped on the phone with me um, anything thank you to everybody who's helped make the show what it is to this day um, I'll keep everyone posted whether or not I will have a show uh, the week of New Year's or not, but I may end up doing, um, you know, putting out a similar episode, just kind of kind of my next set of favorite interviews. Um, but stay tuned with that. I will obviously keep everyone updated on what the plan is. Uh, just be sure to follow us on Twitter at the NVR underscore rugby and at Colton Strickler. Stay plugged in for what we've got cooking heading into the new year. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about all the all the changes and kind of the new direction of uh, you know, what, what Glendale's doing and, and, you know, how that affects my content, obviously, since I'm local and I'm supposed to, to cover what they're up to. So uh, just make sure to stay tuned with that. Uh, again, thank you to everyone that's listened this whole year. It's been it's been fun. Uh, I know when I started in January, it wasn't very good, and, and I feel like I've gotten better. And um, it's been fun to, to talk to different people, hear feedback, answer questions, all that stuff. So 
Uh, thank you to everybody it's, that's followed along, referred the show to a friend, interacted on Twitter, sent questions in, re- read my writing, all that stuff. Um, I'd encourage you all to keep it up, tell, tell more friends about it, uh, hit that retweet button and stuff. Um, but thank you guys for, for a great year. It's been, I've, I've enjoyed it tremendously. It's been a challenge, but it's been one that I've really enjoyed. So uh, have a happy holidays, have a, have a Merry Christmas, and I'll most, most likely catch everybody back here next week. But for now, enjoy a look back at some of my favorite interviews from 2020. <laughs> All right, now welcome on to the show, Christian Sarmento, former Raptor, uh, among a lot of other things. Christian, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Kaonda, friends, uh, happy to be here, happy to talk about one of the passions of my life, rugby in Rugby Town, USA. Yeah, I'm super pumped to have you on. Um, just something like I mentioned to you on the phone, I was talking to Casey Rock last week and he was suggested that I get into some of the old school Raptors and you were the first person that popped in my mind so I'm happy I could hunt you down. Yeah big shout out to Casey Rock he also plays for a team DPS yeah so he's an educator like myself and he's just I would consider him a good friend. Yeah cool so I guess the easiest question we'll start out with is you just tell me a little bit about where you're from. Okay yeah so I'm from Denver, 5280. I got it on my back. I represent the city. <laughs> I was born at the old St. Joe's Hospital, which for people that don't know, that was right by Sloan's Lake. And then I grew up in North Denver, and then when my parents split, I kind of went all over West Metro Denver. So that's like Wheat Ridge, Lakewood, Golden, Unincorporated Jeffco. Nice, man. Um, so before we get into like really the, the beef of this, I got to ask you about nicknames because you got a lot. How many nicknames do you have? I don't know. It's... <laughs> Too many to name. So the original where it started was Scar. And Scar started with like a limited group during a mandatory workouts for football in uh, college. I'd be at the workout center early. And they'd say, you're patrolling this like you're like Scar at his cave or his dinner or whatever. <laughs> but then my first play of college football was a kickoff. And I ran down the field and just crushed this kid. <laughs> he never played again. And I freaking got this huge scar on my head that would continually reopen throughout my whole redshirt freshman year. And that's when it caught on and it kind of evolved to... Scarly, Scarmani, Scarlos Apache, <laughs> Scarly Wildflower, to name a few. I mean, I'm also, my teaching name is Mr. S. And so they call me Mr. Best, Mr. Yeah. Blessed. I tell them not to, but they say Mr. Mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how, I mean, that's what I, that's one of the first things I remember about you. You said Scarly Do Right, right? Yeah, Scarly Do Right, yeah. Scarly Hustle Chips. <laughs> it just goes on and on. I like it. Scarly Mountain Goat. Yeah. Uh, it's a cool man. What I know you just mentioned playing college football. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. But what other sports did you play before you like got into rugby? Yeah, so sports has been central in my life, and it's really been like a guardian angel for me. And now I'm actually a PE teacher, and I do coach, and so I get it's a chance to like complete the cycle of positivity. But I started playing sports when I was probably in fifth grade, and I was playing soccer, and I was just like, I was just. When I find something I like, I just go hard at it. So soccer was my first love. And then from there, I started playing football, basketball. I did some wrestling. I did a little track, um, martial arts. I'd been doing martial arts before then. Yeah. But um, how the rugby origin started is I went out for lacrosse my sophomore year, and I'd always wanted to play lacrosse. And uh, I looked up to my one of my dad's girlfriend's sons who played it in high school. So I was like, "Is that's a cool sport?" <laughs> and have, being Native American, it's like part of our, you know, our roots. Yeah. It's a Native sport. So I played lacrosse, and I mean, I was 
I got into it because all the guys knew me as like, you know, a hog football player, big guy, whatever, you know, aggressive. <laughs> so they all gifted me all their stuff at Wheat Ridge. Shout out Farmers. Yeah, go Farmers. Fun. That's where I went to. Farmer pride. <laughs> don't, don't ask me how you get a Jolly, a jolly Rancher. <laughs> all right. So these guys, they gave me all their hand-me-down stuff and it was just awesome. But um, I played crease defense and I... I kid you not. Like I've played, I've been you know a hitter in sports. Yeah. I used to crush kids in lacrosse, and I would actually get penalized sometimes because like they'd be so big. And so then the next year, Josh Smith, shout out Josh Smith, shout out Jordan Smith, shout out Pastor Rick. <laughs> yes, I think I they're next. Pastor I Rick. think they're next for the show. Um, Josh was like a great organizer of kids, so he just like he actually had a church van. And he picked up all of us little, like, hoodlum rugby, like, <laughs> tough boys that just wanted to, like, get after it. And that's yeah. how I started playing rugby. What year was that then? That would have been my junior year for uh, Littleton Harlequins. So that was an offshoot of the Denver Harlequins. And then the next year we went to Bear Creek Warriors, which was a offshoot of – it was like a Bear Creek, Wheat Ridge, Green Mountain team. So mm-hmm. shout out to uh, Justin Paunga. Oh, yeah. Sole Uso <laughs> and all those guys, they played on the team. Wow, man, this is bringing back. I didn't even know this. Like, I didn't know that you played with all those guys. That's yeah, crazy. another guy that was really big that I played with. I mean, I got so much connections to guys that just went farther than me. Chris Camozzi for uh-huh. Bear Creek, who was actually in the Ultimate Fighter, the show, and oh, went wow. far and got a contract. Jeez. And I'll get more into that because I know right now, number one heavyweight or whatever contender UFC, Justin Gaethy. Yeah. UNC boy. Yeah, yeah, that's what I would lead into the next thing. So you played football at UNC. Uh, how did you get recruited to do that? What was that like, and how did you make the decision to go up there? So at the time, I had gotten suspended off football for uh, my whole junior year, which was, like, detrimental, but it turned out to be such a blessing because I ended up going to Lakewood, and the coach at Lakewood, shout out Mark Robinson, his son's playing at CU now. He did so much more work for us recruiting, and he just, you know, he gave me a lot of grace with how he deal with me when I right. was a young, <laughs> young buck. And so um, after my junior year, my junior year, I just tore it up. I think nine games, I had 125 tackles, Jeez. 15 sacks. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Playing I what, seen, linebacker? Or uh, stand-up D end. Okay, yeah. And that's what I played my senior year, too. And then so my senior year came, and – you know, teams were looking at me, and I was mainly looked at as, like, a, a D2 prospect. Yeah. So my visits were going to be to Mesa State, and they were going to be to Fort Lewis and uh, UNC. I went to Mesa State, and uh, shout-out Bobby Coy. He was a player of the year. He was also hitting that show, my big obnoxious fiancé. He was in that reality <laughs> show. It's crazy. Jeez, man, you know everybody. Yeah, so we were roommates there, and then the next week I went to UNC, and I was just like, yeah, I like UNC better. It's closer to Denver. Yeah. The money was right, and so just signed the papers. I yeah. mean, it was funny. I, I still remember what a O.K. Dalton said, and this old coach, old coach. He used to coach O.J. Simpson at the Bills. He said, looks at my ACT scores, looks at my grades, tells me, you're lazy, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so then you get to UNC. I know you're, t- you're just talking about tackles. How many defensive records do you still have? Because I remember – so I remember I went to CSU – we were working a CSU-UNC game. UNC came up to play. It was the last year at Hughes. And I was pulling, like, their media guide, UNC's media guide, and I was looking through, like, all – they have all the records listed. And it's Christian Sarmento, most tackles in the game. Christian yeah. Sarmento, most tackles. It's you and, and you and somebody else. So what 
what needs to be said about that, all given respect to the old heads, is UNC has a huge tradition of being a D2 powerhouse. Yeah. And they effectively erased all those records, and now all the records are just from their time in D1AA. Oh, interesting. So I wasn't sitting super high on – I think I was seventh all-time in tackles, and I don't know, like tenth all-time in single-game sacks. But since they went to all D1AA, right. I'm first in career tackles, first in career sacks, season sacks, right. you know, like – Clarence Bump has beat my single game tackle record. I'm still yeah, salty about that. That, that was a. I'm I think I have boy. it up. Let me see if I have it up here. There's also a nice article in the uh, Greeley Tribune about you entering a home run derby with the softball team. Yeah, and I didn't want to take off my pads. <laughs> yes. And they strike me out. So I like <laughs> get my pads like perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and we were just doing it for like team building, UNC Bear Pride. Yeah, man, that's that's crazy stuff. What What's like your most memorable moment from playing up at UNC? You um, have one? A couple that come to your head maybe? You know, it, it's sad to say, but like all the plays I made, and I say that humbly, the things that I always remember are the plays I didn't forget. And I can remember, like, one play, my last game in Portland State, I took a perfect drop, and, like, the pass was just to me. And I just I just misread it and judged it. And, like, so it would have been an easy pick six. Yeah. And I just freaking Matumbo swapped <laughs> the ball to the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those ones stick in my mind. But, um, oh, that's funny, man. Yeah. Uh, so cool. I know you talked a bit about how you got into rugby a little bit, but how did you start playing for the Raptors? So like, what did it, what did life look like after you finished up at Greeley? Yeah. So the thing to, that I really want to say is like rugby never left in college, and we were oh, okay. playing on the download. Another shout out to Josh Smith, Jordan Smith. So they'd come for Wyoming games. Yeah. Against UNC, and I'd go sneaking on the B side <laughs> while I was playing football, and then actually NCAA recruiting violation. Um, while I was a, a scholarship athlete there, I played on the whatever Eastern Rockies All Star oh, team. Oh yeah, Irfu, whatever. That and they paid to. for they paid for our hotels and everything, so that's a, the violation. But I played on that team when I was only twenty or eighteen or whatever the age group was. Right. And we won the whole thing. Big shout out Logan Collins, ex Raptor. He don't want to say I don't want to <laughs> say Barbo's on the air. And James yeah. Patterson was unbelievable. Yeah. James Patterson in that tournament. It was like five games. I was the second leading scorer. I was playing winger, you know. Yeah. I didn't know much, just an athlete. Right. I had probably three or four tries. He had literally like 10 to 12 tries in like five games. Who, who are you playing in those earthy tournaments? Is that like Utah or? Yeah, you're playing all the old regional, you know, all-star teams. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Who cool, man. So then, so I, is Josh Schmitz had like a big part in like kind of getting the Raptors off the ground. Is that right? That's what kind of what Casey told me. Um, I'm not sure about that because I was in another place living a different life. Like football was okay. my whole aim. And yeah, because so, I think that was like 07. So when did you graduate? Oh, oh nine, spring of 09. And I went to one practice spring of 09 when I was – Pretty much it was guaranteed I wasn't going to make uh, the NFL. Right. And uh, I'd already been playing for UNC rugby that year. We yeah. took eighth in that. Shout out Mark Smith, Mike Smith, <laughs> and all the boys. Oh, you know, and um, I came to the practice, and I think that year, 09, they were tearing it up. Right. So I thought I'd walk up in there and just be like, you know, get some right. love. But it was like they were, like, preparing for the playoffs, and it was just a real tight outfit then. Yeah. Cool. So then – did, so then you came to the Raptors, or did you go no, spend so some time with somebody I, else first? I came to the Raptors. I played, like I said, that season for UNC. Um, 
And then that summer I was like, you know, I moved back to dinner. I'm like, it's time to, you know, get serious, start working. But I'd go jump in on the Wednesday night sevens. Oh, Love yeah. Wednesday night sevens. Shout out to Denver rugby or whoever puts <laughs> that on. I don't know. I don't know either. But, but yeah, that, that was always a good time. Yeah, I'd go there and then I got in with all the Glendale sevens guys, but I wasn't on the team. And like, it was crazy. We'd like come to sevens practice and sometimes scrimmage the USA sevens. And stuff. Right. And then so I started coming out that fall of 209. Mm-hmm. And I just I I really had to immerse myself in it because the level of rugby was so good and we were still just you know athletes right yeah so uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about is just kind of what that rugby scene was like because when I was talking to Casey he put it in an interesting way it's like he considers himself like a transition between like the old scene and like this new one into these like where it's getting more professional so what was like that the rugby scene like back in nine when you um, I mean what I really like to speak on is just like the youth rugby scene and for the primary ages I'm talking below you know middle school it wasn't even there right and then the high school league I mean when you see it now it's something totally different and they have so many pathways to get better and just like it was totally grassroots then you know in right. Colorado it was the emergence of it in that time that's crazy um so I know you kind of – what was it like playing for the Raptors back then? Like, I know you were talking about, like, doing community service to earn, like, travel yeah, credits so or stuff like that. Yeah, that's one thing I just really wanted to just shout the praises for Glendale is how much they did for rugby in Colorado and just did for people. Right. By giving them something positive. So you used to get free travel credit if you're on the premier, you know, whatever the top side was, or even if you're on the second team, I think – by going and doing rugby in school, community service mm-hmm. events. And, like, I'm thinking about, like, we would go to school some days and with Jenna Anderson, and we'd be there the whole day. Like, we'd pack lunch and just teach a whole PE day. Yeah. Over, you know what I mean? And that's, like, I mean, that's right down your alley, right? That, that's yeah, what you're doing is. now. Yeah, it is. And then I'd, I'd work the summer YMCA camps and stuff with yeah. them. That, I mean, they just did so much. It was awesome. Yeah, man. And I know, like, I know that's one thing right now that – kind of is going unnoticed just considering all the news with the Raptors leaving. But I think I'm glad you brought it up because I, I think it should be acknowledged like how much Glendale as a whole has done for rugby, you know. They so. were the pioneers. Like, they led the way, you know. And right. I'm telling you, Glendale not only did that, but you know what? They used to pay me to coach the kids, and that was some right. of the best time. And I was not coaching premier teams. And you talk, I've head coached in college. I've been a coach, head coach of a team in – New Zealand, but I was coaching little kids, and it was like, you're getting specialized coaching, and you're paying the coaches, and it's like, it was right before our practice, so it was just, it was a sweet situation. Yeah, and and like you mentioned already, like, that just doesn't exist, and it's becoming more normal now, but this was a decade ago, so it just shows to go how far they were ahead of the game in in that sense. And it wasn't just Glendale. They were subsidizing me to go coach for Littleton at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, and that wasn't under the Glendale flag, so that just tells you what they were doing, so... I was coaching for a Gary's son. Gary's son was a beast. I don't remember, but we called ourselves the Pit Bulls. <laughs> then uh, next year, I moved on to coaching Littleton. We had all them long-haired boys. We called ourselves the Bieber Boys. <laughs> the Bieber Boys. I like that. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. You always come correct with these nicknames, Scarly. I love it. Um, cool, man. So, I mean, have you – I know you've been kind of off doing your own thing. That's something we'll talk about in a little bit here. But have you seen, like, the transition into, like, pro rugby, whether it be the pro rugby organization or now even MLR, and just, like, 
I guess from your perspective, is this something that you like ever imagined to see? I mean, even this soon. I don't know if I expected to see it soon. I was definitely a part of it. I was the one who got left behind, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, effectively, but that was a lot due to all of my uh, concussions. But, yeah, you know, I knew that Glendale was going to be a big vehicle in it. I didn't know, and I still don't know what America's appetite is for it. And I right. think that's the recipe is when you introduce it to kids and you show them what a beautiful game it is, then you're going to get people. You yeah. Know? And I guess I'm going to backtrack here a little bit. It's just like when you did start playing, what what was it that hooked you? Like, how did you catch the bug? And I know you mentioned that you're a hitter. Was it just that? Like, was no, it? No, it wasn't that. And it was totally different because it was actually my first year I played wing and then I moved to flanker and then I moved back into the backs. It was such a learning experience and it was hella pressure. It was, yeah. you know, like, especially being a wing and playing teams like the old school Aspen team, you know, mm-hmm. at, at Fest, and they knew who I was, like, and they're right. going to try to manipulate me under the high ball. I'm playing linebacker, boy. I yeah. that. That's like high <laughs> pressure. So, yeah, it was a big learning curve. But um, for me, I my whole identity was that of a competitor. Like in college, it was my everything. And then when it didn't work out going to the pros or going to the CFL, like, and I got back working, and then I started teaching right off the bat. It was just like rugby filled that void, and I, I just loved it, you know? Right. Yeah, I, I like asking people that because it's always different for everybody. So thank you for, uh, for letting us know about that. So I know you just mentioned concussions, um, so we can get into that a little bit. How many do you think that you yikes, had? Yikes, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to take a guess, how many do you think you had? I mean, conservative estimate? Yeah. I'm saying definitely over 20. Yeah, I, I was thinking when I was driving over here today is like, like how serious was, were, did they take concussions when you were in college? Because I feel like that was right before it, it, it became like well yeah, known that yeah. it was a big deal. Yeah, it was. It was right on the cutting edge and it was also on the cutting edge right when PEDs were starting to blow up, mm. you know, like all that kind of stuff. But um, it's funny because I used to get concussions when I was in college starting my junior year I think or sophomore year and um the thing was is I'd get knocked out only momentarily but I would come to and I'd be completely cognitive of everything right and they would sometimes let me back in the game I mean they pretty much did it a lot you know right and then the trainers at the school the head athletic trainers started doing a you know like a case study on me because it was obvious there was some trauma there and then on top of that kind of finding a way to uh cheat the impact test you know Mm-hmm. Or you could just kind of mess up the impact test. So then if you did have a concussion and you had to retest, right. it was not that the hard. The baseline's like not yeah. as high. But I mean. when you're cheating the impact test, remember, they're also testing your response time. So don't just click, 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 click. Oh, yeah. Or else you'll have a, <laughs> a doozy trying to get back yeah, in. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to do it as fast the next yeah. time. Huh? Yeah, man. Um, and then I get, I'm curious about this, too, because this, this is why I stopped playing rugby. I just got my head knocked too many times. And it's because... I learned how to play football first. So, like, I remember when I was a kid from second grade, they always taught you throw your head across, right? You cut them off. And then when I started playing rugby, I was tackling the same way, and I was just getting my bell rung. Do you think that played any yeah, role Yeah, it definitely it played a thing. But one thing you don't understand is, yeah, concussions are bad. But you have to think about also sub-concussive blows to the head. Yeah. And rugby is one thing, but football is something totally different. Right. And I grew up in a time in football where you could still pretty much spear people. And that's yeah. how you were taught. Because you use your head as a weapon, you're going you're gonna to get some snot knockers out there. You're going <laughs> to knock some guys on their booty. Right. So I can just like remember that. 
and like even growing up, you know, and I grew up hardcore Wheat Ridge Wolverines, you know, guys with Tom Gee as my coach. We had a kid named Guppy. Dude, he used to just hit kids so hard he would knock himself out when he was like right. in seventh grade. And he got love for it. And it was like he was a good hitter. Right. So that's how we were taught. And then I can still hear we used to do this savage drill called the door drill where the coach holds up a door. One guy's on one side about four yards deep. The other guy's on one side. Like an actual door? Like No, like a big pad. Oh, okay. Like a, like a <laughs> I was like, yeah. So that's like a door. Yeah, like a shield. And so yeah. uh, the back just comes and he picks a hole left or right. And you just got to meet him. And I can just... To this day, here, here, old Cody Detai's face. Put your face on him, <laughs> you know, because yeah. he wants you to get in front and do that. And I'm saying, when you're coming up, if you cared about football, rugby, whatever, like I did, mm-hmm. then you weren't thinking about that. You were just trying to do the, yeah. you know, you were just trying to do what was what you thought was the way to play. Yeah, I can remember even my dad telling me stuff like that. Like, yeah. You know, fastest, slowest man wins and, and whatever it takes to knock him down. Yeah. So that's like – because even like I was coming up in high school, that's like when it started to get yeah. serious. And even then it was hard for people to understand that what it was actually doing. But so I was like playing in the in the transition and it sounds like – I was wondering that as I was driving over like how much that era that you played in probably played into that. Yeah, I have a funny picture and it's me getting a sack against Weber State against this guy named Cameron Higgins who was a great player. But it's me laid out. Imagine a missile. Yeah. So I'm like parallel yeah. and just my head. Like, Superman. Yeah, yeah, like my head's just going into it. And I'm like, I don't think you could do yeah, that these that, days. No way. <laughs> yeah, man. Jeez. Um, so if you, if you had to pick, again, I'm going to ask you this in relation to rugby. If, is there some, a couple moments that come to the top of your mind from your rugby career, whether it be like a big match or – even just like some road trip that sticks out to you with with some some people or yeah, there's any, many. Yeah, so, um, I'm all ears. I like listening to these. First is when we won that national championship against Texas mm-hmm. with uh, Patterson that that All Star championship. And Patterson kicked me a high kick. I caught it like it was such a beautiful kick. One bounce, and it was me and Justin Boyd who played um, for USA Sevens at the time. Yeah, he was like three feet, four feet from the try zone, and. Boom, I just trucked him, got the tries. That was tough. <laughs> Winning the PRP championship will always stand out, and especially because the origins of that story was like the year before I was like this guy who came off the bench at, you know, like a utility player at loose flanker and forward, and I would come off and I like something good would always happen. Like I would be an impact player. And so they put me in at the last 20 minutes against Golden Gate that year, and like Coach Robbie said, hey, I'm putting you in to win the game, and we lost that game. And then I went to Alaska for my first time to fish. I came back. I went to one practice for the sevens team. They're like, boy, you're coming to the <laughs> Omaha with us. Yeah. So Omaha, we have to win this one game, and we are into the next level. And I get the ball on the uh, – like, it's an overlap. I get it. They pass it out. I get it. Boom, get tackled, double move. I should have done something. Effort, and we lost the game. Like, mm. that was the turning part because of me. Yeah. And then I came and I went to Hawaii and I went back and I just came and I said, shouted out the boys on Twitter. And I'm like, Scarmani Smooth, follow me. But I said, uh, I'm coming to the game. They said, bring your cleats. Yeah. I think me and the friends are already on it beforehand. Yeah, you know, right. we're already hooping and stuff and just getting into no goods. So I come down there, I broke my hand. So I'm like, all these things, those three things, like I don't want to end like that. And then I came back that next year, started. And, like, even through starting, I had so much to learn from Robbie. And I can remember um, 
on the throw-ins, on the line-outs, excuse me, I'm sorry, line-outs, not a throw-in. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was like the loose guy, you know, I was the guy who hawked the number one, right. but if it was an overthrow, I had to go get it, yep. and I was really struggling with that. Like, I just would, like, I wasn't tracking it right, I wasn't playing it right, and then we just kept working on it throughout the season, and then in the finals game, I did that, and I, I got the ball, and, like, boom, got some <laughs> yards, and it, like, recycled, and we got a try, and I was just like... Yeah, it, it paid off. Nice, man. And then I wanted to ask you, too, about you've lived in a lot of places, but like, how much has rugby allowed you to travel? And I know I want to ask you about your time in New Zealand, but just how many places like has rugby actually taken you? I mean, pretty much that's one thing that's beautiful about it. It'll take you anywhere, and it'll put you in contact with good people. I mean, yeah. obviously New Zealand, but just even here in Colorado, you know, mountain leagues going mm. down there and then putting you up and playing rugby right. in beautiful towns, you know, Vail, yep. whatever, and stuff like that and then when I was playing for the Raptors and like the higher the higher right before they turned pro they were paying for us to travel you know mm -hmm. they were they were doing that and so we were going to California and when you go on a rugby trip it's not as regimented as football yeah so it's like the game's over boy like see you tomorrow hope you make the plane <laughs> yeah yeah seriously that's so, that's one thing I think people don't really understand is like it is fun, and there's, like, a respect for the other team because without them, like, you wouldn't be able to do this. And so th that's why there is, like, the celebrations after the match and stuff. Um, so what was New Zealand like? How long were you there? What did you do down there? So I went down there, I think that was 2013. I'm not sure. Um, I remember because uh, we had a scrimmage against Air Force at – here and I was playing and I rolled my ankle really bad and that injury yeah. stayed with me for a while but I went down there in April my old school uh, was like in rural Colorado where I taught at I was also the athletic director but they just let me go and they're like all right come back you know and I went down there because my stepsister's nanny was from New Zealand and we used to just live right over there in Glendale yeah and when her and her husband came I come and took him to the facilities her husband because he was a big rugby fan and uh, he was just shocked, and he was like, wow, I can't believe you guys had these kind of facilities. Yeah. And so he's like, if you ever want to come out, come out. So then I went down there to Queenstown, which is, like, beautiful. Uh -huh. And I started playing. I, like, picked between two clubs. I picked the Wakatipu Wanderers. And um, <laughs> I also started coaching the high school team. And I was doing odd jobs on the time. Like, I did some crazy jobs <laughs> out there. I did uh, – Traffic control on a movie set, Top of oh, the Lake, man. BBC classic. <laughs> What's it called? Top of the Lake. Top of the Lake. I'll I guess it's a drama, up. and I, I don't like that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then I was doing, like, being in uh, different parts. I did this huge air show in Wanaka, and I would tear down all the bleachers of the air show. It was terrible. <laughs> Moving stuff. And then so I started playing for Wakatipu. The premier team, like, they knew I was, they knew I was hard, but they, they had – top level backs like they were whatever the next up is you know like yeah the otago the next level the up. next level yeah so they're like yo you can play uh you can we need you we want you to play flanker and i was like nah i don't <laughs> think so i just want to play center. Right. And that's when i was still a prima donna so <laughs> i started playing there on the second time the walk tipu wanders and um just started torching dudes <laughs> but it was so crazy because it was like I'm very, like, empathetic, em empathic, so, like, I can tell what other people are feeling, and I pick right. up on that, and, like, I'm not, I wouldn't say, maybe I'm being humble, but maybe I am, like, I'm not, I don't think of myself as, like, a nasty player so, so much, like, I don't get 
talking and stuff like that. Uh-huh. But when I would take on that persona, you know, like this, like, bullheaded USA, right. you know, crazy dude. And my team would just, like, power up, get monitored. They ate it up. Yeah, so I would, like, I started acting like that, and I was just, I scored, like, ten tries in nine games. But then the last game against Roxborough, I'm not positive, but I'm almost positive. You know, I feel like this is it. Like, I had already had, like, a lot of, like, beef in the game with them, and they're, like, our main rivals. And so I get tackled, quick recycle, one-man ruck, and I'm just laying there, and someone just came and stomped on my ankle and broke the ankle. Jeez. So, I mean, there's a lesson in that. Don't talk, boy. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so, yeah. Don't talk when you're a guest in someone's country. (laughs) I guess there's a lesson in everything. Yeah, because I I mean, I can imagine they're probably not used to that, right? Like an American coming down. The level of play of rugby – Way better, even in even though that wasn't top level New Zealand rugby, right. but the level of athlete way lower. Yeah, if that makes sense. That's interesting. That's interesting that you say that. There's, uh, I have some thoughts about that as well that I'll talk to you about off the mic. But, um, cool. So I, I wanted to ask you this. Um, this will be one of the last ones. If you got anything else, please feel free to include it. But if, what are you doing now that you're not playing rugby anymore? And and I mean, based off our conversation right now. You can tell you you kind of go as the wind blows. So we'll, yeah, I like what were you just doing these last three months that you're telling me on the phone on Friday? So I am a teacher in DPS. I'm also a commercial salmon fisherman deckhand in Bristol Bay, but um, school got canceled a long time ago, and yeah. uh, I just hit the road. I like felt like I was, I've always felt like I was called to go to Zion National Park, so I went there. Then I went to Vegas on St. Paddy's Day. Then I, like, this one big road trip. Then I went to the Grand Canyon because I'd never been there. And everything was just closing behind me in this wake of coronavirus. <laughs> That's crazy. And so my brother lives in Montana. My mom's family, my mom's side of the family, they're from Montana. They're native. So we all used to go up there every summer. But my brother lives up there, works with bears now. He's like the grizzly guy. He hits me up and he's like, yeah, boy, come up. I want your help rebuilding my roof. So I rolled up there. And... Um, I was up in Valier, which is like middle of nowhere, northern Montana, close to the border, close to the res. And um, I was there for about a month. My brother started getting stressed because the bears are waking up, and then he's got one living in his spare room. Yeah. So I took off, and I went to Flathead Lake, Kalispell, Summers area, and I'd just been working on a ranch, uh, doing a lot of saw work as well with the chainsaw because, I mean, I was a wildland forest firefighter in Alaska, so I, I liked that kind of work. Yeah. That's, and then you're off back to Alaska, right? Tomorrow. We're tomorrow. recording this on Wednesday. So tomorrow. I think this will come out next week, actually. So you'll be in Alaska by a week yeah, by I'll then. Yeah, in a boat. It's like <laughs> I, I need to be there right now because I don't like all this diversion in America right now. I just yeah. want everyone to be like, all right, well, number one, have dialogue with people so yes. you know that they know that you feel the same and you stand together because when we stand together, we're strong, you know? For sure. Yeah, so what's that like up in Alaska? Like, how does that work? you live on the boat or...? Yeah, usually you'd get out there. So for me, um, when you ask me what I've been doing, yeah. I've been doing a lot of travel. So I was yeah. just in Nepal. Um, I did the Annapuna circuit with my brother without a guide, wow. without Sherpas. Jeez. And then I've been going to uh, Peru the last couple of years doing some volunteer work and some shamanic healing. <laughs> but I usually go to Peru right at the end of school and okay. then leave. But the borders are closed, obviously, to yeah. Alaska. So once you get into Alaska... Usually you get up there, do a week or so of boat work on the boat, on the net. I don't do that. I just do the money job because I got a good reputation now. Yeah. So I might take a cut in percentage to go up there. So you go straight out on the boat. There's different districts in the bay where you have to drop your card. Like I'm fishing here or I'm fishing there. If you yeah. transfer, then it's like a 48-hour period. 
the thing that I love about Alaska is it's sustainable natural industry. Yeah. It's one of the last natural fisheries and it's all managed by science. Mm -hmm. So if they don't get their escapement, meaning the fish up river by fishing game, they don't let you fish. But yeah. if the escapement's where it should be, you know, you fish one to two tides a day, four period, like four to six hour periods, or sometimes they just open it all up. So you're getting two, three to five hour naps, depending on how it, how it doesn't work, but you're out there fishing, you put the net in the water, you bring it on, bring it on sometime by hydro, sometime by hand, which is, you know, rugged. Yeah. But my main job is to pick the fish out of the net as quickly as possible and do all the net stuff and kind of be like, hear what the captain says from the deck and do us. The boats are really small. They're only 32 feet and live there. I used to live on a boat where it was from 1968, no bathroom, <laughs> oh, man. no heat. The pump used to go out, so we'd routinely wake up in a foot of water. Like not like it's gonna, not like it's gonna flood, but it's just not right. a not a nice living area. It, you got an interesting life, man. Uh, Scarly, that's all the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you what you wanted to chat about before we cut this off? No, I just wanted to say uh, thanks to Glendale. They've been really kind to me, and they just gave me. Gave me something that I loved, and I would like everyone always told me, and especially coaches, is that the game of rugby isn't bigger than you. Mm. So it's like a vehicle for you to do stuff that's that should be what it was to you, which is something positive. For sure. Um, how do how do people find you, Scarly? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on uh, Twitter I, at Scarmani, like Armani, but with an S. Smooth <laughs> Scarmani S. Yeah, and then I'll I'll be sure to tag you. I in got all this five stuff followers now. <laughs> We'll, get, we'll try to boost Shout out all my followers, we'll Dustin Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Scarlett, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Yep. All right, now welcome on to the show, USA Rugby CEO, Ross Young. Ross, how are you doing? Great, Colin. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, I'm happy to have you on. There's a lot of, obviously, a lot of stuff we want to ask you about uh, based on all the, the recent announcements, so we'll just jump right into it. And the first question we ask everybody when we do the show is just can you tell us a little bit about where you're from? Where I'm from, where's my home? It's yeah. always an interesting question. The, uh, <laughs> I've been a little bit of a nomadic gypsy. Yeah. From, you know, even as a kid, I was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, my dad was an engineer and ended up doing a number of international gigs. Um, so Middle East, Far East, Africa got shipped around. And then I actually my first connection with rugby was uh, decided that I needed some stability in my education and got put into a boarding school in Edinburgh, so uh -huh. I was within striking distance of my family and having never really known what the game was and really been from a working class soccer background in in Edinburgh, this this was introduced this strange game at, yeah. uh, at, at boarding school. How old were you when you, uh, when you did that? So I, 13, so that sort of, that sort yeah. of high school, high school age and was there for five years. Uh, I like to ask people too, just kind of what, what did you like about it? Like, when did you catch the bug? Was it your first training, your first match? I hated like, it. It was terrible. Oh, you hated it. Oh, <laughs> I just didn't. I mean, it's a complicated game. Yeah. And, you know, and you're sort of thrust in there, and you know, even at that age, obviously, the advantage in in European environments, it's you know, they they'd been playing since they were three, four years old. And, right. Oh, you, you know, you look reasonably athletic. Well, so my first game was literally. I think I had two training sessions in a game. Okay. Um, yeah, and, baptism and was fire play, then, played huh? in the set, it put in the centres. Yeah. And just a disaster. I <laughs> didn't know what was going on. It was a was a nightmare. Um, but yeah, that was my first introduction. Was sort of thrust into this. Yeah. 
freezing cold, raining, big heavy cotton shirts which weighed about three tonnes when the rain soaked into it, standing freezing and the ball only came me twice, I think, the whole game. So <laughs> I mean you couldn't hate of it too much though, right? If I'm if I'm talking to you now. So was there a moment that it like flipped for you? Yeah, I, I think it was just conditioned because it was such rugby as a sport was such an integral part of the school historically right. and it was mandatory. Every single person had to play rugby. There was no choice. Oh, really? So you didn't get to choose sports. The, that sort of autumn season was uh, was dedicated to rugby and really school structure. So eventually realised that was going to be far more useful lumbering around in the forwards than playing in the backs. <laughs> and when I moved to become a forward, then, yeah, definitely, definitely yeah. at that connection point. And just you're around with your mates. And that, you know, yeah. to me, that was one of the biggest things that was... You know, it really was a case of you were, you know, you were, you were all in it together with all your different shapes and sizes of your buddies. Right. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it took me a couple of years before it really sunk in that uh, that it was going to be a long term involvement for me. Yeah, that's interesting. That's the first answer I've got like that. So I'm glad to, I'm glad you dove into that a little bit. Um, so I know you mentioned already that you you were kind of a nomad. So can you explain how you uh, ended up at USA Rugby? Seems like you've got like an interesting background. <laughs> Again, yeah, probably not not standard Colton. So, I mean, I, you know, I got a little bit better at, at rugby during that whole period, and it's it's interesting that rugby was a was a base for my first career choice. Um, so, you know, in the in the days when I left school and decided what I was going to do, um, you know, the being in the police gave you a lot more flexibility, and the police. You know, in, again, in those days, you know, being the sad old man that I am, it's, uh, you know, it was it, it was an opportunity to train and have your shifts accommodated, and you know, and and almost becoming, I suppose, it was it would be almost semi-pro in some ways because mm. if you played representative rugby for the police, you played at the highest level with the likes of the Harlequins and mm. the, the Wasps and and uh, you know the, those other which are now well-established big boys of the sport. So the Met Police were in the old first division. So for me, career choice was linked a little bit. I quite, yeah. you know, quite liked the the challenge of becoming a police officer and allowed me to, to play rugby at a reasonable level as well. So that kicked off the journey. Um, I was in the Met Police in London for nearly 15 years wow. and then had a couple of catastrophic knee injuries, which meant I had to give up playing. And then flicked to, uh, again, through rugby connections, I had to have reconstructions and was what was put on what's turned as light duties in the police and administrative. And I remember going to see my commander and said, well, you know, why don't you go and help? They're rebuilding Twickenham. We have to review the policing plans. Why don't you go and help out in the office? And that was a trigger to get involved in rugby administration, yeah. even from a policing and event operations. Again, in those days... Definitely in the, the UK, you had a lot more police activity in the stadium as well uh -huh. as sort of traffic management, et cetera, the outside. Nowadays, of course, it's all private security right. and steward companies inside venues. But yeah, so that was, I, I was almost given that opportunity. And then as the game went professional, I was approached by two different rugby clubs to to get involved in their, you know, senior management as a stadium and an operations manager. Uh -huh. And so I took the plunge to leave the police and join Harlequins as uh, as their 
as they say, their stadium and operations manager, then ended up being general manager for Quinns, looking after everything apart from the high performance side, really. Mm -hmm. um, and then went from there to world rugby and was initially started off as the operations manager for Rugby World Cup and ended up being the general manager for Rugby World Cups and moved to Australia originally, then back to France and then New Zealand. So I was involved in three cycles of World Cups. Wow. Wanted to get off the, the event train and decided to set up my own little one-man consultancy group in the UK. I was asked to come and do some stuff in the US. Mm -hmm. And then my paths crossed with a guy called... Chris Prentice and he and his wife Julie had set up what was then Serevi Rugby. Right. Again, strong links to Glendale. Yeah. And we had that joint venture going with the the, the Serevi Rugby yep. event initially. So, yeah, went from consultancy to offer to a full time job. Moved to the US, was involved with Serevi. Then got you know that whole business transitioned into not just a rugby but a data analytics company based mm -hmm. around football. Yeah. And then started doing some work around the World Cup Sevens in San Francisco for USA Rugby and then then moved across to USA Rugby in earnest around, well, nearly two years ago now. Yeah, what a story. That's a lot of, that's a lot of movement too. Yeah, probably too much talking. People <laughs> have been bored and half asleep no, by now. I, I love it. People love it. I'm very fascinated by Adipus too, but that might be another conversation. <laughs> um, so next question I got here for you is, do you have a most prominent rugby memory that's I mean, just based on your story, you've been involved in a lot of different... Uh, I, I think, you know, from from a playing side, I um, was lucky enough in actually in preparation for the, the World Cup in 91 in, in, in the UK. Each of the international teams were given a host venue to train at and we hosted the Argentinians. So, you know, I was never, never good enough to, to really hit the highest level in rugby, but managed to play a game against the Argentinians, which yeah. just really showed you the, the difference between international rugby and even the, you know, good at that stage, English first division rugby. I mean, they just played with us, yeah. you know, literally toyed with us for, for four 20 minute quarters. So, but just being on that field right. in that environment um, uh, and from a rugby administrator for me, you know, it's, it had to be the conclusion of the World Cup in 2003 and it's such, it was such a huge learning curve getting involved with professional rugby from the early days at Harlequins and constant challenges and you know going and then moving to, to world rugby and an intense build-up with dealing with very organised Australians that literally everyone within that organising entity to be involved in the Olympics in Sydney in 2000. So ultra-professional, ultra-structured, which put a huge strain on us because I was the interface between them and still largely transitioning amateur to professional rugby environment. And it was, it was a tough two years. Um, but when that final finished and everyone had mm -hmm. left the stadium, it was one of those classic moments when you're there and the confetti is still <laughs> on the playing field. And I remember just walking back out on my own, there was nobody else in there and just yeah. crying like a baby for about <laughs> half an hour because it had all finished. So right. I think that, that event itself, and everyone talks about that being the, the first grown-up Rugby World Cup that really hit, yeah. you know, numbers globally and, you know, just playing a relatively small part in in building that but almost owning it in some ways was for, from my own by pulling in all the other 
all the other entities. Yeah, that was that, right. that was probably the the special point at the end of uh, at the end of the World Cup final in two thousand and three. What a memory. What a story. I like asking people that, too, because it's always so different. Like a lot of the guys we've talked to, it's been this high school match that they played in or something. And, and so I, I'm glad uh, that you shared that one with us. So um, last week, USA Rugby announced the, the new partnership with the city of Glendale. So can you kind of explain what kind of partnership USA Rugby's had with Glendale in the past and kind of how it evolved into this deal a little bit? I mean, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, Colton, and I think, you know, I remember coming to Infinity Park when I was with Serevi mm -hmm. um, and sitting down with Linda, you know, and getting the background on how this great facility was put together and some of the long-term objectives, you know, both through, you know, through the mayor and the, the project in general was, I think, you know, part of the background of that was to make it a little bit of a centralised hub for for USA Rugby and... I think there'd been a number of frustrations that we probably won't go into in this <laughs> environment about the fact that that didn't really materialise. Right. There's actually a little bit of bitterness, I think, even from both sides, that that didn't really work at that stage. So it's, you know, that was my first interaction with it and thinking, well, you know, should it, it it's a great facility, uh -huh. you know, maybe there should be, but that certainly wasn't my remit at the time and we had a great relationship for the the three years that we had the, the Serevi event here that's now the Rugby Town Seven. So I think, you know, knowing that at the back of the mind and then moving here a couple of years ago, yeah, we certainly wanted to improve those relationships. And I just think it's it's just happened naturally over time. To me, it just, it seems to make sense mm -hmm. to be more integrated. We have this hub for Sevens in Chula Vista. Yeah. Um, I mean, the US obviously a, a huge country and, we're going to have to take the team on the road to various different events just because right. of the size. But, but at least having a having a hub and a base for the men's and women's 15s team just makes sense. I mean, right. we're in a reorganisation phase, as, as most people listening to this will know. We've, we've had a horrendous period over the last probably three to four years in particular, um, which has culminated as into this, this forced reorganisation but doing that has, has allowed us to clean a few things and come with mm -hmm. a little bit of a, more of a blank piece of paper. So to me, it, it makes sense to get this in place. And, you know, and I think all the discussions have been around, we know it's a difficult environment. We know rugby's establishing itself in various different ways within, within the US, but let's, let, let's build a partnership and not be over dictatorial about what, has to happen let's work together you know, mm -hmm. with the city with infinity infinity park about how we can really build on a base agreement over a long-term period right. that is beneficial not just for the men's and women's 15th senior 15s programs yeah. the age grade programs and rugby in general as a growth mechanism across men and women and boys and girls so it's I think that's the way partnerships evolve better instead yeah. of trying to over-dictate at the start, right, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Let's let's get the base agreement in place and then we can build on initiatives over this long-term period. Yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I, one of the other things I'm glad you mentioned is that it, it makes sense because that's one thing that, I mean, that's how I felt after the announcement was made. I think that's how a lot of people I saw just responding to the announcement online is that this just makes sense and to see it um, kind of take form is encouraging. So... 
Um, but you just talked about not just benefiting the men's and women's 15s programs, but American rugby as a whole. So I guess just kind of leading into that is like, overall, what does this partnership do for American rugby as a whole, like in your opinion? I, I tell you, kids, and again, it, not the easiest thing to quantify, but I think, yeah. you know, I think the one thing that we want to push through here is is having certainty and having a base and, you know, developmental pathways, um, you know, and, and making sure that both the teams, both the, the women's and, and, and men's teams, you know, have the ability to grow programming. And I think the, you know, the, there's there's not many places that have the, the infrastructure here with regard to, you know, Jamie... Jamie Burke and Luke, mm -hmm. you know, been around both icons of the men's and women's game have been involved with Glendale programming for a long time is, you know, building youth initiatives, having the teams here, the national teams and doing outreach when they're here and, you know, working with Rugby Colorado in general right. and, and then and then fill in the middle part. So to me, we've got the aspirational elements of the national teams at the top. We know there's a good, strong, you know, youth and high school um, environment through you know, the work that, that, that Tom Wren and Angus do with Rugby Colorado. So let's concentrate on the top and the bottom mm -hmm. and then fill in the pieces in, in between, um, as, as say, as we move through the, the long term. But, you know, having the teams here and be able to use them to activate activity and then, and then replicate almost what we do here when we play, you know, other matches in other parts of the US. Right. But just make this the hub of it all. Right. That's an interesting way to look at it. Um, is there is there something about this partnership that excites you most? Like uh, now that you've had, I guess, a week or so to think about it since it's been announced. But is there something about it at all that excites you most? I think we've got to look at that from USA Rugby's perspective, and yeah. I think the it's not quite there. But that you know, as always, as a, as a national governing body, you get criticisms from all sides. Yeah. Um, and to me, you know, we. We had the, we kicked off this with having, you know, we've got obviously as people are aware, we've had the downsize and we've got a core staff that we've maintained during the last difficult few months, and mm -hmm. it's resetting the the team environment. I mean, everyone talks about rugby cultures, rugby values, togetherness, inclusiveness, etc. You know, we've definitely been trying to push that for the last eighteen months, but for me, it's it's almost the opportunity to reintegrate. Yeah, the high performance area with the national office and the membership and the grassroots. So from a business perspective, we've taken steps to almost differentiate those which make sense from a financial operating side of the business. But it gives us the opportunity to pull everyone together and we're all in this as one right. and sort of and restart. So to me, that's the most exciting thing is have a base, have a training facility that we're going to have a lot more in interactivity if you like with the national teams instead of them being miles away from where the the administrative hub of the office is right. um and then as you say we can then work on initiatives you know with with colorado as an area and obviously glendale as, as, a, as a hub for that with specific initiatives moving forward but the biggest thing is really restarting and pulling everyone together and 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 sort of rebuild the, the team culture, I suppose, across all facets of the organization. Right. So that that's what excites you as a CEO of, of USA Rugby. But is do you think there's anything that 
just me, regular American rugby fan, should be excited about, like in terms of this partnership? I think the same. Yeah, it's same almost thing. it's almost the same thing, and I think it's you know, and it's having certainty the fact that you know, with the increased national team activity here, yeah. and especially you know regionally, I think I think we, it's it's making sure that's done, that's integrated, that that's communicated properly, and that people are aware. Um, I think you know the city of Glendale and the rugby city invested a lot in communication channels, infrastructure here to be able to do things. So, you know, I think both of us working together to to push out content mm-hmm. and give us the ability to come. Then is is not just going to help us, but as you say, it's going to help the the regular yeah, rugby fan regular as well me. by having you know by having a base like this to be able to do more more activity. And I know Calder and Alina in particular have done great things when you have the sevens teams together right. in one place at Chula Vista and but it becomes a, it's been a little bit more disjointed because the 15s teams have been all over the place and yeah. I think having them you know having them here in one allows us to do better and more regular content around around 15s rather than than there being more focus on sevens because of their you know their residence if you like in Chula Vista Right, and that, that was going to lead into my next question. Is just got, could you kind of talk about where the men's and women's 15s teams have trained in the past? And I mean, you just explained how it's made how it's going to make things easier when they're all in one place. But like, how has that worked in the past? It's just really been on an ad hoc basis, just trying yeah. to move around, you know, do individual deals. The the I know as we've built this over the last couple of years, both you know the women's teams, the Barbarians game that you know, they had a did a great one-off deal with, with the city last year to have an extended camp, if you like, before the, the women played the Barbarians here last year. Right. And then the men's obviously, you know, used this as a base prior to going to Japan. So it's not as if we've not done things before, but, you know, I think the, you know, as we said, we it, it certainly gives us the opportunity to do more of that moving forward. For sure. Um, and I guess just the last question I had for for you, Ross, if there was just anything else about this partnership that you think people should be aware of, or do we do you think we covered it all? I think we've covered it all. But to me, everything is about you know being inclusive, right. um, and you know that's not just from a DNI perspective. That that that's about inclusive of all areas of the you know of rugby. And I said you know from from youth all the way through to national teams. So it's uh, I just. And as I said, I, I really want to be flexible and build this out. And I think, you know, you mentioned earlier, what have we done previously? You do one-off arrangements, you know, you you have games. You know, we want to have a minimum number of games here so you know there's a base. Yeah, We've got a lot of work to do with World Rugby on calendarization in general for the men's and the women's game. Um, we've got the World Cup in New Zealand next year. Right obviously preparation and using this as a base for that for the for the women's side is going to be phenomenal and it's you know it's just it's really having that engagement and doing it and then but don't let's not try and overthink things we've got consistently mm-hmm. now we've got a long-term arrangement in place let's build things that are going to be meaningful if we know there's going to be a game here every july from it gets in people's mindset and you can build stuff through continuity you look at the great things that Glendale have done with hosting the women's series with two slots into that. Yeah. Obviously far more successful the second year with regard to attendance and engagement than the first year. 
you get that with long-term agreements. Having one-off agreements, it's a little bit hit and miss. But if we build continuity and know the fact that we've got this as a solid base, right. then we can do more things and calendarize more regular things based on the fact that we know we're going to be here. So hopefully we can, you know, we can both benefit from a, a good, fruitful, long-term partnership. For sure. Well, perfect. Well, thank you, Ross. That's all uh, the questions I had for you. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you inviting me and we'll do it again. Yeah, looking forward to it. Cheers, Colton. Thank you. Uh. All right. Now, welcome on to the show, former Raptor Zach Paunga. Zach, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for uh, taking the time to do this. I know uh, we've been kind of going back and forth for a few weeks, so I'm happy that we got this uh, scheduled. So the first question we just kind of ask everybody is, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from? Yeah, I was born and raised in Lakewood, Colorado. Um, just a suburb of Denver. Right. Grew up pretty local to where the Raptors play, and um, went to Green Mountain High School, Carter State for college. Yeah, kind of stayed local from most of my youth. Yeah, awesome. And I know uh, you've you've got a very interesting athletic career. You've done a lot of cool things. But um, so this is like this is a rugby show. So we'll talk a little bit about rugby before we jump into some of the other stuff that you've been doing. So how did you? When and how did you get into rugby? So my, my dad is Samoan. He's he's from Samoa. So rugby is the biggest sport over there. So he's always rugby's always been a part of my life. Uh, I was always a fan of it. When I was in high school, there was a club rugby team in Green Mountain, and my dad was a coach. So that's when I finally got to start playing for real was mm-hmm. uh, my freshman year of high school. Yeah, and I like asking people this is like, when did it – when did you kind of catch the bug? Was it your first training? Was it your first match? It's kind of different for everybody. I was just wondering when, when you were, like, hooked on it. So I rugby had always been my team's favorite team sport since I was, like, five. Yeah. So I was in love with rugby my entire life. Right. It's just such an exciting game for for people that are dynamic athletes. Like you get to do everything. You get to run, catch, pass, kick. So I was always in love with it, and then when they finally put a club team together at my high school, that's when it was just a dream come true. Right. Uh, can you kind of talk about some of the other sports that you played when you were younger? Yeah, so I, growing up, I never had an off-season. I was, my parent, I was just one of those kids that was in a sport every season. We went straight from football into wrestling, straight from wrestling into baseball, straight from baseball into summer track. Yeah. Um, that was just my life for 25 years. You know, I just played sports my entire life. Yeah. And I know just from talking to you in the past and following you along, uh, one of those sports, you, like you mentioned, was football. So can you kind of talk about how you ended up at CSU? Yeah, so obviously like most uh, American boys, football was was my main pursuit growing up and um, was big in the football. Green Mountain had a good football program as well as a rugby program. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting a a full-ride scholarship to TSU to to play football and took it and went up there to Fort Collins and, and played football basically for the next five years. Yeah, what position did you play? So I, I was signed, I was given a scholarship as a linebacker. Uh-huh. I made the transition my freshman year to 
um, fullback. Yeah. Just because the team needed a fullback and it was a way to see the field. Right. So I played my, my whole career as like a H back, like blocking tight end type uh, position. Yeah. Cool. What are what are some of the most memorable moments of about playing football up at CSU that you have? There was a lot. I mean, obviously I spent five years there. Mm-hmm. It was it was a great time. You know, going to Fulham and, and beating CU on their home turf when they didn't want to play at Mile High anymore was <laughs> was probably the best uh, the best memory. Because then after that, we went back to Mile High because they <laughs> right. didn't like us coming into their house and beating them. Right. Winning the New Mexico Bowl was fun, and then just all the you know some moments away from the from the cameras and the lights that, that really just stick with me. All the early morning workouts with the guys that are my, you know, friends, lifelong friends now. That's what really sticks with me. Yeah, for sure. I like that. I like when uh, see when CU goes down as a, as a former Ram myself. So, um, cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, when did going to the NFL become a real possibility for you? And can you kind of fill people in on what happened after you left CSU? Yeah. So yeah, after I left CSU, I was signed as an undrafted free agent to the Houston Texans. Uh, it was a little bit different than most people's experience because I I also came out during the lockout. Mm-hmm. So there was no contact with the team until preseason football started and they ended the lockout. Jeez. So that was a little different than most most people experience. Right. I just show up two weeks before the first preseason game. Even though I had signed with the Texans, I knew I was going there, but I wasn't allowed to practice with them, wasn't allowed to do anything. Right. Until those first two weeks. Jeez. And, yeah. It was, it was, I mean, it was different. It was a different right. time for, for a lot of us. But the first, when I realized there's a possibility, it was when you go to college, mm-hmm. the Division One football team, everyone there was the best player on their high school team. Mm-hmm. Everyone there was was the best player from their hometown. And when I got among those guys, and then as a freshman, I was as a redshirt freshman, so I did redshirt a year. Mm-hmm. But when I switched over to offense, and as a freshman, I was starting and I was competing and I was doing well against... We played teams like Cal that had uh, Marshawn Lynch on it at the time. They were number three in the nation. Right. And I was competing against those guys as a 19 year old kid. Like that's when I pretty much figured like, okay, yeah. I can, I'm okay at this game. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I guess what kind of what, um, I guess, how did that NFL experience compare to anything you've done before? And I know it was a little different, but I guess the way I'm asking is like, once you finally got in there and you did get, be able to start practicing and, and, and you get around the, these NFL guys, how did that compare to anything that you'd ever done before? You know, and I'll be honest with you. Obviously, I am not playing in the NFL right now. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't ready for it. It was. I wasn't ready for my passion to become my job. Right. And that's that's what it was. It was eight to twelve hours a day, every single day, five days a week, six days a week during the season. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was amazing. It was had been my dream for my entire life, but it was hard work, and that's. 
maybe you don't hear that often from, from people about how hard it is to be a professional athlete. Yeah. And even from college, like we worked hard in college, but they had a certain amount of hours that they couldn't train us for longer than those hours. We still had class during the day that we had to go to. Right. Once you're in the NFL, you have one thing to do and that's play football or get better at playing football. Yeah. And, and honestly at, at that age in my life, I, I wasn't prepared for that. And, uh, is ultimately why I didn't make a bigger splash in the league. Right. That's an interesting answer. I'm, I'm glad that you shared that with us. So, like you just mentioned, didn't, didn't make the biggest splash in the league. But So then you leave football. How long did it take you to pick up rugby again after, after your football days were done? So my, my brother Justin had been playing with the Raptors the entire time that I was, I was playing at CSU and, and with the Texans. Uh-huh. Um, and I had been coming to the game. It's a great setup at Infinity Park. It's always entertaining. So I was aware that, that high-level rugby was being played in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And while I was trying to get back in the league, I was just going and running around with the boys, with the Raptors. Yeah. Just the same shape. And I played some so to answer your question almost immediately, yeah. but I didn't, I didn't realize that I was the steps I was taking. I played some B side games, like jumped on with the team up in, in uh, Aspen for rugger fest, yeah. a few things thinking that I was getting ready, trying to stay in shape to go back to football. And that opportunity didn't, I probably did that without seriously committing to rugby for two years. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, finally when I was about 25, I was like, you know, I'm I'm loving what I'm doing. Football's not happening. Let's just sell out for rugby. Yeah. And then how long after that moment, I guess, was did pro rugby start up? So I think it was three three years. Yeah. Yeah. So we I started the first year that the PRP okay. happened. So we lost the first one, first Lost in the final, the first PRP, won two finals, mm-hmm. and then pro pro came about. Yeah, and pro was obviously a, a very interesting endeavor, and it's kind of paved the way for MLR in a lot of different ways. Um, and I know Absolutely. I've, talked to, <laughs> I've talked to a couple different people about their experience playing. Um, so I just was interested in if there's some of the th- – what are some of the things that you remember most about that experience? So, yeah, <laughs> Pro was an interesting experience. They, I'll give them credit for one thing. Uh-huh. They were the first ones to have the guts to make a pro rugby league in right. America. And ev- everything we have now is because of pro. Right. But other than that, <laughs> it was it was this kind of messed up situation. Right. The coaches and the players were top notch. Yeah. The, the, the coaches and the players were amazing the best there was and it was cool to get everyone in Colorado which in my opinion is the best rugby state yeah. on the same team yeah. so that was the first time that the Raptors and the Barbos players that we kind of joined up and just showed that we are the best rugby state right. um, but there was all the financial stuff was weird mm-hmm. there was weird situations of like the owners not wanting to pay guys on full-time contracts who weren't making the roster. So 
I'm playing in the game, but someone else's name is on the roster <laughs> and their name is getting my stats and right. stuff like that. So all of the financial and administrative stuff was a hassle and a pain, but it was great to get true high level rugby in America and just start the professional side of America. Right. And Zach, do you still have some, some stampede kit? You still have some, I do have, I, I do have some, I still, I think (laughs) some, some purple jerseys and shorts. I I don't, I can't find those. anywhere. I've been looking hard, so I'm going to have to keep tracking some stuff down for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, yeah. I think I kept, I kept the jersey that we won the final in. Oh yeah, that's a good yeah. one to hang on to. That was a great game yeah. too. That was, I mean, all, all of that, that whole season, like you said, it was cool to see somebody take the leap. Obviously, did not go over the best the best way possible, but it's kind of paved the way for mm-hmm. this new endeavor. And um, I hope that there's some some fun memories to look back on for you guys that were in the thick of it. I, that's, I know that's what Casey Rock told me. It's fun. It's fun to look back and look at some of the changing room situations and all that. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, <laughs> like look, and it was a good group of guys we had in in Denver too. That was what made a lot of the the nonsense bearable. Was just how good group of guys we had. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. So um, I know. I guess I got two more rugby questions before we jump into some other stuff, but. Um, do you have a favorite rugby memory of all time? And I like asking a lot of people this too because it's always different. Some people, it's they're you know playing in a high school state championship, or I don't know mm-hmm. if yours could be I don't know playing in one of those PRP finals. But is there is there one match that kind of sticks out in your mind? Yeah. So, and this is probably not what you're expecting to hear. Like, obviously, I had. Tons of great experiences with the Raptors. So many championships, high level stuff like that. Yeah. My favorite member with the Raptor memory with the Raptors, which was from a, a sevens game early in my career when we're um the Raptor Sevens program wasn't super developed yet. Yeah. And our team was horrible. <laughs> our team was not great. Like I'm not really, at the time, I really wasn't a sevens player at all. Right. I was a true 15 forward. My brother was on the team. He's a back, but he's not a sevens player. Right. So our team was horrible, and we were playing against Aspen, and they had Carlin Isles. Oh, man. Like, they had guys <laughs> that are on, they had guys that are on the, uh, yeah, like staples the, of USA the Olympic team right now. Right yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah. And we ended up beating that team, that Aspen team, and just grinding them out. Yeah, like playing, literally playing 15s, just rolling malls and just smash mouth uh, rugby yeah. in a sevens match, and we end up beating that team. And that's my favorite memory <laughs> of just how rugby can go. Sometimes, sometimes it's not about skill or speed right. or fitness; it's just about gritting and getting it done. Sometimes, yeah. I see, and that's but that's why I like asking the, that question though, because I. I would never, I've never even heard about that match, but now I'm interested mm-hmm. in, and like, I love that's different for everybody. So, <laughs> uh, moving, yeah, that, just, yeah, that last rugby okay. question I had for you is, uh, what, just what about rugby do you miss the most? I know just following you on social, I see you post about rugby here and there, you talk about missing it. What about it do you miss the most? I definitely miss the, the camaraderie of the team. Mm-hmm. It's just, 
the culture of rugby is something you don't really even get with, with football or, or other American sports. Mm-hmm. The, the aftermatch socials, things, things like that. And as far as, as playing the game, I just miss doing everything in one game. <laughs> right. Running, passing, tackling, just getting to be a part of the entire game as a player. Yeah. That's a good answer. I like that. So now to move on to the, the last little bit of the interview. So we talked about you playing in the NFL. We talked about you playing very high-level rugby. And now your most recent endeavor is, is you're, you're into MMA now. You're fighting. So when did you decide mm-hmm. to get into MMA, and, and how did that happen? So it, when the NLR started, mm-hmm. they were, for, for good reason, they were asking for a big time commitment from the players. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I was still working at the time, and I just couldn't give the team the time that they wanted to, to pay you, you know? Right. And so I, I had to step away from rugby, but I just needed – I still, like I said, I've been playing sports every season of my life since I was five years old. I needed something to do, mm-hmm. but I needed it something I could do on my own time, like when I had the time to do it. Yeah. And I ended up going to Easton's uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. Just a, no intent of being a fighting in a cage, but <laughs> I just wanted some exercise, wanted to learn some new skills, wanted to have some fun. Right. Um, yeah. Had, had some early success with it. Um, team Elevation, the fight team, trains out of that, out of the school in Denver, mm-hmm. amongst a few other ones. And... Uh, big bodies are, you don't come across big guys that uh, fight very often. It's just not something that's very common. Mm-hmm. And so after a while, I was asked to just come in and, and train with uh, Curtis Blades, who's number three heavyweight in the UFC. Yeah. And like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to pretend like I did well against him <laughs> my first day. Like he destroyed me and, and, beat me up but i was like okay i i can do this right if he's if this is the number three guy in the entire world <laughs> i can do this and then so i just talked to the coaches and and just went off from there started striking started learning the whole the whole system of mma yeah and i know especially at dnvr curtis blades is a guy that, that we're very familiar with i know these la- i think his last two pay-per-views he's been rocking our merch which has been awesome, and I know that you were mm-hmm. you were into Vegas with him just a couple of weeks ago, right? For his his latest, yeah, fight. I I cornered him for his last fight with with Alexander Volkov in Vegas. Wow, what was that like? I mean, that's got to be super unique experience during, especially during uh, coronavirus time. What was that experience like? So the coronavirus experience was something totally separate. Like we were locked down in a hotel six days before the event. Yeah. Uh, tested three times for coronavirus. Jeez. Temperature is taken every morning. Um, luckily, I mean, the beauty of, of MMA is that we had everything we needed. We had, he had me there, the training partner, and we had a mat on the floor to our gloves. So that's all we needed to get some work in before the fight. Yeah. And, uh, the production of the UFC was amazing. Yeah. That was very cool to see behind the scenes. Even in times like this, I mean, they're running like a well-oiled machine yeah. over at the Apex Center, getting everything 
set up to be able to stream sports to people out there. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I know, I think that's why I'm glad I get to talk to you because I feel like, especially like people buying pay-per-views and watching UFC, it's probably a lot more people are probably doing that since this is kind of the only sport that's been on consistently for the last few months. Um, what What's Curtis like? Could you kind of describe what, what he's like as a person? Yeah, I mean, and you would probably hear this about most fighters. You would not really believe me if I told you what he was like. <laughs> he's the nicest guy. He's kind of like a big cuddly teddy bear yeah. outside of the cage. You know, we both have uh, daughters that are about the same age, two, one to two to three age range. And he's just a chill dude. He likes to watch anime. <laughs> he likes to, <laughs> you know, read books, talk about Lord of the Rings. He's kind of nerdy in that aspect. But yeah. he's, a, he's a really cool guy. And he's just, he's just chill. Most of these fighters, like everyone thinks that fighters are these intimidating, tough people. But when you know, when you're confident that you know you can handle yourself, mm-hmm. you don't have to be mean to people. You don't have to be rude, things like that. Yeah, that's interesting. I never heard it put that way. Uh, so I got a couple more MMA questions for you, and then I'll let you go, Zach. So uh, last sure. one I just had is, how does MMA compare to the other sports that you've played? I know obviously you're a guy we've talked about on the show already. You've just been playing sports forever. You've played a lot of different sports. But how does this one stack up against against some of those other ones? Physically, I'd say it's pretty similar to rugby. It's uh, There's a lot that you're using, you know, aerobic energy systems and anaerobic. Long drawn out runs. There's explosive bursts of of power. Mm-hmm. So physically, it's, it's it's very similar to rugby. There's a mental aspect of MMA that is different than any sport I, I've ever played. Yeah, like it is. We we do call it a sport, but you're locking yourself in a cage with another man, <laughs> and and there's a possibility only one of you is going to be awake in the next 15 minutes. Like. Right. And that is something that took me, I took maybe three fights before I, I realized that I was still getting adrenaline dumps before the fight and like getting tired before the fight. Yeah. And I had to do some, some specific targeted mental work to get myself ready to go fight another person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I can't even imagine that, and I know that's something like I feel like everyone kind of thinks when they watch a watch a fight. Um, something that I've talked about with my friends quite a bit too is like I've played rugby, I played football, obviously not at the the high levels that you have, but um, I, and then I know waking up the next day, it you just feel beat up, and and how I don't even how does the one thing I've wanted to ask is like how does that even stack up? Like what do you feel like the next day when you wake up after you just been in a fight? <laughs> So there's the cuts are really the only thing that are like different. Yeah. I'll I'll be honest with you, soreness level. Yeah. Football is is way above MMA. Interesting. Wait, waking up the next day from from taking helmets to the thighs and to the ribs and stuff for an hour mm-hmm. is a lot worse than 15 minutes of of punching and kicking. Yeah. But the the aspect of the cuts, like I said, someone opening a people are trying to open giant gashes over your eyes to get the fight stopped. Like right. the cuts suck. And then, you know, if you get caught in a submission, um, 
that you're not able to tap quick enough or you don't tap. Like I, in all the football and rugby I played, I never ever thought like, man, I hope I don't break my arm today, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's a possibility. And, and anytime you do in the jiu-jitsu, like, man, I hope I don't want to lose. If I do, I hope I'm not out for eight months from a broken for arm sure. or something like that. Uh, that's yeah that's interesting I'm glad I got to ask you that so all right that's it Zach that's really all the questions I had I know we talked a little bit about before we jumped on but uh, you just kind of want to tell us about you got a fight coming up here in a few weeks yep I'm fighting July 31st for the LFA Mm -hmm. it'll be on UFC fight pass uh, so tune in. Yeah, I'm I'm going to do that. I, th- I was looking at it before. I'm going to sign up for that. I'm going to come check you out. So thank you so much for your time, Zach. I really appreciate it, man. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Now, welcome back onto the show. Uh, Glendale Director of Rugby, Mark Bullock. Mark, how are you doing? Hey, Colton, I'm doing really well, and I just want to have a shout-out to all those Wheat Ridge farmers. Is uh, You're a former student, and I was a former uh, teacher and uh, vice principal there, so... Go Farmers. Yes, go Farmers. Got to gotta shout out the Farmers when you get the opportunity. All right, Mark, so the reason we want to have you on is uh, we want to talk about this new endeavor that you and your staff have kind of been on these last few months, so I'll just jump right into it. Can you tell us what the Rugby Town Crossover Academy is? Yeah, um, the Crossover Academy actually is a, a concept that we've had for actually quite some time, and um, two years ago we actually uh, made an effort of going out and recruiting um, what we would consider elite athletes um, to transfer uh, and play rugby. Um, because in general, the uh, best athletes in the United States are often offered scholarships at university to play uh, football, basketball, track and field, and other sports, wrestling included. And um, those athletes are the very best athletes. And, and we want to... Uh, kind of direct them into rugby. Mm-hmm. And so we're not going to get them out of high school. We're going to have to get them out of college. And so right. what we're taking a look at is recruitment of those athletes, uh, which I consider elite athletes, yeah. uh, to move into rugby and to um, upskill them as quickly as we can and, and get them to be playing rugby. Because ultimately our goal in Glendale is to, to win a World Cup. Right. So I know you said it's been in the works for two years. What has that kind of looked like? What were some of the steps that you guys have taken to, to make this a reality? Yeah, um, and our first experiment, which was on 2018, uh, we basically went out and, and tried to recruit, um, really, NFL, ex-NFL players or players who have been in the NFL pool and, and didn't make it, uh, and then some recruits from track and field and and basically, that's what we're doing now is we are going out and uh, going through the college ranks. Mm-hmm. We presently have a, a database of about 3,000 athletes, uh, and that includes not just college athletes in football and basketball and other sports, wrestling, et cetera. Um, it also includes XFL players, NFL players have been cut, uh, Canadian Football League players have been cut. Uh, we've had discussions with the um, head of the USA bobsled team and how they've gotten crossover athletes. We've just recently had uh, some discussions with the um, U.S. Olympic um, wrestling and so forth because we're really trying to put over a big net to find as many athletes who may be interested in transferring their athletic skill and other sport into rugby. Right. It sounds like an interesting project. And uh, what do you think is going to be, like, do you think if you just get them in here and, and you get them 
around the game you think that's just going to click? You think they're going to just love it? Uh, that's a good question. I, I'm going to say yes and no. Um, really, the uh, in my experience, having coached rugby for a long time and introduced the game to people who have never played before, um, what I generally find is if I can get them in a game, yeah, they will fall in love with the game. Right. Uh, perhaps not in practice, but I, my experience is when they play in a game, they, they love the game. Now, that being said, not everybody will be able to adapt uh, and make that transition. Uh, you have to, A, want to make a transition. You want to have uh, a great work ethic so that you can uh, develop your skills. And I think most importantly, you have to have, besides an open mindset, you have to have an athletic intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, because the game is a little bit different. It's not as structured as some games. I mean, it is structured, but um, there's a lot of free flow. And what I like to say when I coach football was that um, football is a coach's game and, and rugby is a player's game. Yeah. Uh, and that being that in football, the coaches are making the decision most of the time. And in rugby, the players are making the decision once the game starts. So. Right. So that's a change for players. For sure. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically, I know back in July, there was the spring league was out on the turf. They were here for about a week. How, how big of a help has the Spring League been to you and your staff? Um, I think the biggest thing about the Spring League for us was, one, immediately getting in a tie-in to uh, NFL development-type camp. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was one. I think the biggest thing was um, I come from a football background. I coached football for 20 years and, and worked with um, the Seahawks back in the 80s and University of Washington. And so – I have a football background, yeah. and our coaching staff, um, some who are from overseas, don't have a football background. I think having the spring league here really helped to cement their um, observations that these are really elite athletes, and they're fantastic athletes. And so our challenge is, uh, A, recruiting them, but then the bigger challenge is to be helping to convert them to a sport that they haven't played. Now, some people would say, oh, they can't make that transition, and I don't believe that's true. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, my observations are is that many of the top athletes in the United States who are playing university sports and ultimately professional sports often are multiple sport athletes. Right. They played football and basketball or football and wrestling or football and track and field, et cetera, and many of them played three different sports in high school, and those are the athletes that can make that transition because they've done it. They played football in the fall, and then it became um, wintertime in December, and they started playing basketball. Right. And so it's about their athletic ability and, more importantly, their willingness to learn something new. Right. When is this first camp scheduled to take place? Well, that's a great question. We actually have a date, and that's uh, November 17 to November 21. Um, we're anticipating um, – well, actually, we're not really sure how many numbers we'll have. We'd right. like to get 30. Uh -huh. uh, we could get up to 50. Um, right now, we're in the process of um, responding and inviting athletes. So um, we've – out of our database, we're, we're developing contacts. Mm -hmm. Once we get the contact, then we have a conversation with them and, and see if they want to come in. Yeah. Uh, and then prior to their coming in, we're, we're sending them a rugby ball. We're uh, sending them clips uh, to look at and, 
in recommending things and training that they could do to come in and, and give an opportunity to, to compete at the best level that right. they can. That's awesome. Um, are you allowed to say how many people have committed to the camp? Oh, yeah. At this point, I mean, we're just really yeah. early in the process, and, sure. and we have approximately 10 players uh, that are interested in the camp. But what I find most interesting, and this is something that we found two years ago when we brought the players in, we brought them in for a week and then played up in Aspen, um, is that they're highly professional yeah. because they've been in um, what I would consider professional uh, university programs yeah. where things are structured and how they train, and then they've been in the NFL. And so what we're finding is is that they on their own are looking up uh, rugby tapes or looking at things they can do, right. and then they come back to us with, oh, I think I could play this position or this position does this, or, gee, I need to do the Bronco test. We didn't even talk about the Bronco <laughs> test. They look it up. Right. It's a conditioning test for rugby. Um, so I think we have a unique set of athletes, um, and we'll see how it goes. My yeah. experience is that it'll go well. Yeah. Uh, I know you talked about the overall goal of the program is, is to ultimately help the United States win the World Cup and bringing in these high-caliber athletes that really, you know, this is something that I feel like hasn't been done. There hasn't been the people that we bring in the, the blue chip, best of the best athletes to, to teach them to play rugby, and that's what we'll need ultimately to, to accomplish that goal. But um, I guess if we could, like, in smaller terms, what is the goal of the program? Like, do you know uh, who you will play? Will this be like a team? Or is this be like a one-off camp? Will this be like a team that plays in the spring against other clubs? Do you, do you know all of that yet, or is that still in the works? Well, that's a big question. There's a lot going <laughs> on, actually. Um, our, our first goal is to, to bring the players in, to give them the opportunity to um, demonstrate their skill and ability, and, and probably really to demonstrate the skill and ability of our coaching staff mm -hmm. uh, to assist people who aren't familiar with the game. Um, that being said, we have, um, once we have our camp, we'll invite players in to, to basically contract them to play rugby. Um, and then we have uh, organized ourselves to play in the um, Red River Conference uh, out of Texas and the Pacific Rugby Premiership um, out of California. And then in addition to that, we work hard with the Seattle Rugby Club uh, to promote the development of American athletes in rugby. And yeah. so we'll have home games with them or home and away games. We're also looking at matches with New York Athletic Club because they also have a similar goal of yeah. developing American athletes to win a World Cup. Yeah. And so they're going about it in a little different way than we are. We're going after university athletes and doing this crossover camp. So our goal in the spring of 2021, uh, all things going as we hope, we'll be playing from uh, late January to, to May, June. And then our next set is that um, if we are successful, we want to move forward into the fall uh, and try to arrange games with um, academy teams in the Pro 14 overseas. Yeah, that now, that's a, that's a big ask for us. Yeah. But, you know, our view is, is if you don't reach far, you're not going to get anywhere. And being a mountaineer, uh, my mindset is if I'm going to summit the mountain, I've got to take the first step. Right. And so for us, we're taking the first step, which is our camp, then our competition, and then what is the next step. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the, 
that third step is a big step, and there's right. a crevasse in the way, and you got to figure out how to overcome it. Right. And that's really what we're we're looking at doing. Uh, no one's really done this, at least that we're aware of, from a structural and organizational standpoint. Um, to just regress a little bit, in the past, some of our best USA rugby players are players who've come from other sports. Luke Gross comes to mind immediately, obviously, because he's on our yeah. staff. But he played basketball uh, at Marshall University, and then somebody asked him, hey, do you want to play rugby? And he said, oh, yeah, I'll try that. And then within a year, he was playing with the U.S. national team, and then he had a 12-year career professionally overseas. And if you look at Dan Lyle and Dave Hodges uh, and other players of that caliber, um, they all played overseas, but they all came from another sport right. and came to rugby what the world would say relatively late, mm-hmm. and they made that transition. And that's really what we're trying to do, but in a structural, organized manner. Right. And um, I'm an optimist, and I believe that we can uh, move forward and that we can be successful. Mm-hmm. How quickly or how long, that's to be determined. Yeah, that's fair. I feel like that's more than fair. Um, I wanted to ask you, too, I know from talking to you in the past few months, it seems like you have a great example of the, of this personified in Luke Gross, like you just mentioned. He's a guy that did this. Um, but have you? I know just kind of from talking to you, have, have what have you thought of, like, the rest of your staff? Has it taken a little bit of convincing for them to kind of see the potential in this, or how has that kind of gone? Yeah, that's a, actually an excellent question. Um, part of the, the reason that's easy for me is because uh, back in 1986, I started a high school rugby program at a point in time where there wasn't video and there wasn't uh, anything the players could watch. They never had seen rugby. I come out with a leather rugby ball and go, hey, I want to start a rugby team here after <laughs> I'm coaching football in the fall and we're going to play some rugby in the spring. And my idea at that time was to develop high school players who could funnel into the Seattle Rugby Club, which is where I was located at the time. And what happened was our first year, we were pretty mediocre. And our second year, we won the state championship. And then I transferred to another school, and we actually did the same thing. When I came to Colorado, we started a team at Wheat Ridge High School. And our first year, we were (laughs) mediocre. And our second year, we won the state championship. So I know that that we can take players who – have absolutely no idea what rugby is, yeah, and teach them the game and be successful at it. Now, we're looking at a much higher level in high school, but I know that from what we've done in the past, we can do that. Now, that being said, um, I come from that background, from a football background. I coached high school basketball also, that we can make that transition. Uh, Peter Pass, my manager, comes from American football and wrestling background. He also understands that. Our foreign coaches or coaches who come from overseas um, at the start were less enthusiastic yeah. because their experience overseas in New Zealand is we all start playing rugby when we're really young, and you can only be a good rugby player if you start really young. What they've discovered, and this is part of the spring league in particular, is that the athletes that we're looking at and going after are outstanding mm-hmm. athletes and as good as anything they've seen. In addition to that, we've sat and watched. We watch a lot of video, and they're watching wrestling players and going, oh, my God, look at how good that athlete is. Look at how he moves. Look at how hard he works. He's a grinder. And all of the things that would characterize uh, quality rugby players. So I think our staff has really, uh, particularly the staff that aren't 
from American sporting background, yeah. have really made a drastic change in terms of their outlook of what can be done. And I'll give you an example of kind of things that I, f- I find interesting is we can't, and I think the same way too, is we constantly get this, well, you, you know, you're going to have to bring in a nine and a 10 because those are key decision-making mm-hmm. positions. And how could you possibly, you know, develop that in a short amount of time? And, and I look at it again, and I could be wrong, but I look at it from the standpoint of the 10 is a, a, as a key decision-maker. But if I were out to recruit a college or a f- quarterback, I'd go, here's a quarterback who's played four years in high school, four years in college, and his job is to run um, the offense, and they run the um, run-pass option. And basically, he, his job is to come up, read what's out in front of him, like a 10 does, yeah. then make a decision when the ball comes to him, do I pass it, do I pitch it, or do I run it? And when a 10 gets the ball, he makes a decision. Yeah. Do I kick it? Do I pass it? Do I run it? Yeah. So the decision-making and all those kind of things are the same. What's different is just the game. Right. And so I'm of the belief that, and the confidence that our staff can teach people to play those key decision-making positions and do a credible job. Because as a 10, what are your primary responsibilities? Distribute the ball, mm-hmm. kick the ball into space as needed, mm-hmm. and to run the ball when the options are there. And actually, some of their decision-making is helped by the outside backs because they're telling them what they can see outside. So I think right. this is all part of the experiment. Yeah. You know, Can we do that? Can we actually teach that and not just go, oh, we got to bring in some foreign guy, which is if you look at – you know, our national teams, most of our 10s and 9s are people that were raised overseas. Mm-hmm. And does that have to be the case? Mm-hmm. And I believe that's not necessarily true, that I think we can develop our players. Right. And the reason I wanted to ask that is because I feel like when people start digging into this and they hear about this, I feel like they're going to think the same way, right? Like to the traditional rugby like lifers, they aren't going to – they're going to look at this and say, think that same thing. So that's why I wanted to ask you. Just And you said like yourself – you've kind of lived it over these past few months with your own coaches that kind of felt that way at the beginning and are kind of making the switch the more familiar that they get with these guys, right? Yeah, that's, I think that's really true. And I, I think that the, um, the challenge is, and I mean, I, I think the same way because I come from playing rugby, but it's, yeah. it's like, do you absolutely have to have an experienced player at mm-hmm. 12 or an experienced player at 9 or what have you? Can you train the players to do that? Now, absolutely, it might speed the process up if part of your uh, group is you've got a 10 or a 9, and then the ones who are learning that position have someone to model. For sure. um, I think that certainly uh, is a benefit and would be helpful. Um, but is it necessary? I don't know. We're going to find out. Yeah. And, yeah, I think that it's exciting. Um, it's something that I know since I've been around rugby, everyone's kind of talked about is what would happen if you – took these guys and taught them to play rugby, what would that look like? And someone's finally doing it. Someone's finally taking the chance to try to do it. Yeah, it's kind of, it is an interesting concept because we, we do have you, – you read things kind of outrageous where, you know, someone will go, well, if you just take a bunch of football players and they can just do this. And it's yeah. like, well, it's not quite that easy. It's not. It's you, not. You've got to do a lot of preparation. You've got to do a lot of work. And, and to me, I, I was a science teacher – teaching chemistry and biology before I became an administrator. And um, I'm about doing experiments. And this mm-hmm. is an experiment. Yeah. And we 
have a hypothesis of what is possible, and we may be incorrect. We don't know. Um, and that's why you do a test. That's why you have an experiment. And so we're going to do this experiment. We're going to find out what's, how it works. And as when you do an experiment and you have a hypothesis, if it doesn't work out quite the way you want it to, you make additions and you change. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to do. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, and it's through failure that you ultimately get success. Right. And that's where we're going. Um, and... You know, when we first started here, people were like, well, you can't do that. You can't build a stadium. Well, we did. <laughs> well, you can't start, you know, you can't just move up to D1 and compete. You're going to get beat. Well, we played in the D1 National Championship the first year we did that. Yeah. Because we're going to push ahead. That's been always been our goal. Mm-hmm. We're going to push the boundary of what we can do. And we're going to have uh, an intense vision of what we want to accomplish, and we're going to work hard to accomplish that. Yeah. And if we run into obstacles, we'll figure out the obstacle and, and try to overcome it. Yeah. That's how we operate. I'm ready to run through a brick wall, Mark, after you <laughs> say that. Uh, so the last question I just want to finish up with is, why should people be excited about this program? And I guess it's kind of hard for you to answer since you are not people. You are you. So I guess we could change it. Why are you excited about this program? Um, I'm excited about the program because, number one, we have – we have a structured format to try, and, and it'll be changing because we'll learn things, but we have a structured format to try to develop athletes, elite athletes, the ones who just missed out on playing in the NFL, to play rugby. And that has to benefit our national team. If it benefits our national team and we can get elite athletes in there, not to downplay the athletes we have, but we're talking about a different quality of athlete, mm-hmm. then that should be able to assist us in really winning a World Cup. Right now, we've never been into the knockout stages. So our first goal is to get to the knockout stages. So that's one of the things that excites me about the program. The other thing that excites me about the program is once we get going, we've, we talked about playing in the spring of 2021 and then moving to 20, the fall of 2021. Well, we're really looking to go beyond Mm-hmm. playing just domestically we're really looking at going on and playing internationally yeah and so we've been in various conversations with uh, members of the the ceo of the pro 14 and so forth and we're looking at how we can expand um our own product yeah. but also american rugby yeah I mean, mark i actually just saw another question uh i don't want to get people get mad at me for leaving this out so I want to make sure that I included it. But what would happen if other teams come knocking? You develop these guys, because there are going to be different type of athletes that these teams haven't seen. But you develop these guys. What happens if an MLR team comes knocking? Uh, anyone else, someone in the premiership comes knocking? What, what are, you, are those players going to be allowed to go play somewhere else, or how is that going to work? Actually, that's a, an excellent question. And, and part of our discussion with uh, the CEO of Pro 14 was that um, you know, we might be an incubator for players who get invited to go play there. Um, part of this is all about, ultimately, finances, right? Yeah. So um, if a, a t- another team, regardless of where they're from or who they are, uh, if they come in and they go, you know, we'd really like this player, uh, and they have the funding to, to pay them, mm-hmm. and it's better than what we can offer them, then, then good on the player. Uh, we're right. about giving players opportunities to expand their game. Now, ideally, down the line, we'll be good enough that they won't want to leave us right. and we'll be um, financially competitive with uh, other suitors mm-hmm. uh, to 
to them, and they'll want to say, you know what, I want to stay here. Right. But that being said, when we first start off, you know, if Munster were to say, geez, you got that six foot nine guy, we don't have anybody like that, we'd like to bring him into our academy and play him, then we're going to encourage them to, to do that because we want the players to be able to achieve at their highest level. That's always been my desire as a coach is to try to develop players so that they can play at the highest level that they want to play at mm-hmm. and what that they can achieve at. Yeah. So that doesn't change really. Yeah, well, that sounds awesome. I know this all sounds really interesting. I'm very excited to see what comes of it, and it's it's coming quick. I know uh, two months from now. So uh, that's all the questions I had for you, Mark. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Colton. And go on, Farmer Nation. Yes, go Farmers. <laughs>